Hello and welcome to another episode of the Personal Injury Pod, the personal injury podcast for barristers at St John's Chambers. My name is Lauren Carmel and I am a clinical negligence, personal injuries and inquest barrister at St John's. Hello, I'm Louise Asprey. I am also a barrister specialising in personal injury and clinical negligence at St John's and arising out of those practice areas, I deal with a fair few inquests as part of my practice as well. In this episode, we will be exploring issues commonly faced by practitioners representing both families and non-family interested persons at inquests. So starting at the beginning, Louise, what do you think the main differences are between a trial and an inquest? Lauren, you introduced this question very well by referring at the outset to interested persons rather than interested parties. And I think that's really the main difference to emphasise. The inquest process is inquisitorial. It's not an adversarial process. And as lawyers, particularly as counsel, as litigators, we are far more familiar with the adversarial process. An inquest is completely different in nature, in purpose. It's just a different entity altogether. The inquest is run and directed by the coroner, and it's, of course, for the coroner, assisted in certain circumstances, as we'll come to discuss, by the jury, to determine who the deceased was, when he or she died, where he or she died, and how he or she died. So those are the central questions, the statutory questions that are being considered and addressed and answered during the course of the inquest. And so the main thing to understand is it is not a trial. No one is on trial. Determining criminal civil liability, that is for another court on another occasion. My view is that this often means that as lawyers, when you start the inquest process, when you're advising your client, you feel that you have far less control. When you're dealing with a civil trial as the claimant, you define proceedings, you set out the issues that you want to have heard. And as a defendant, you look at those issues have an idea of what the issues are, where the claimant wants the case to go, and then you respond to those. The inquest will be opened and then there will be a series of investigations by the coroner who will obtain evidence, whether by witness statements, by documentary evidence, but there is this ongoing investigation. You're there to represent your client by assisting the coroner. So the effect is that you often feel, or certainly my experience is, that you feel like you are far less in control of the process than you would be with the trial. The difference between a trial and the inquest procedure process as well means that I think it's really important to explain to your lay client, or indeed if you've got a professional client, the purpose of the inquest. From a family's perspective, they will have many, many questions and there are many unknowns that they want answered in this process. And it's very important, in my view, to ensure that they understand, to a certain extent, the limited scope of the investigation by the coroner, just so that they understand it. I've talked about, I've spoken about this lack of control. Now, whether you're acting for a family or another interested person, a key tactic to ensure that you have as much control as possible is to become involved as early as possible and to fully engage with the pre-inquest review hearings. So those are the preliminary hearings, which allows the coroner to consider various different matters that need to be addressed in advance of the inquest itself. So you will very often, once you have been identified as an interested person, and we'll discuss uh, the nature of the interested person later on, 
you will get a PIR, pre-inquest review hearing agenda. And that will set out all of the key issues that a coroner wants to look at. There's usually a fairly standard list of initial issues for the first PIR. And that is the engagement of Article 2, the scope of the inquest, the identity of the interested persons, and then how the inquest itself is to be heard, whether a jury is required. And then there will be issues of disclosure by way of documents or witness evidence, so the evidence gathering element. So that's the starting point, the PIR. You see where the coroner is, what's going on, how matters are going to progress. And when you are looking at an inquest, when you are considering the different issues that we're going to talk about as we go on, as we progress, the chief coroner's guidance is always a really useful starting point. So you can literally obtain this guidance by Googling chief coroner and the particular issue you're interested in. And just having a look at whether there is guidance, you know, we'll talk about conclusions and so forth, there's guidance on all of those issues. It's a really useful starting point. So I've spoken about a number of different issues that you would expect a coroner to address at a pre-inquest review hearing. The central one and possibly one of the most topical and important is the engagement of Article 2. It's a matter for the coroner as to whether they deal with scope or the engagement of Article 2 first. I've seen it done in different ways. But what would you say the main difference between an Article 2 and a non-Article 2 inquest is? What does that mean and how does it impact upon the nature of the inquest itself? Well, one of the most common issues faced at a pre-inquest review hearing is going to be whether an inquest should be an Article 2 inquest or not. If Article 2 isn't engaged, these are often termed Jameson-style inquests. And when the coroner is dealing with the question of how the deceased came by their death, how means by what means they came by their death. When you have an Article 2 inquest, and they are often termed Middleton-style inquests, the question of how the deceased came by their death is broadened. So it actually then means by what means and in what circumstances did the deceased come by their death. It doesn't sound as though it's a huge expansion, but practically it emphasises both the cause of the death and also the overarching system by which it took place. So practically, when you're at an inquest and Article 2 is engaged, that means that coroners will likely hear evidence that extends beyond the medical cause of death. So, for example, it will be looking at the systems and the framework that was in place at the time of the deceased's death. And it's been interpreted as imposing three distinct duties on states and those exercising state functions. And those three duties are these. First, there's a negative duty to refrain from taking life without justification. Second, there's a positive duty to protect life. And that has two specific aspects. The first is the framework or systems duty. So, for example, that means having in place an administrative framework or a legislative framework that protects the right to life. So, for example, having provisions of the criminal law which deter the commission of offences. In a healthcare context, that's really about having effective regulatory and administrative systems in place, whether that's in um, primary care or secondary care. And the second aspect of the positive duty 
is a duty to take positive measures to protect an individual whose life may be at risk in certain circumstances. And that's commonly phrased as the positive operational duty. So the positive operational duty arises where the state agency knows or they ought reasonably to know of a real and immediate risk to an individual's life. And it requires it to take measures, as could reasonably be expected of it, to avoid such risk. And in the well-known case of Rabone, there have been four essential features of cases which recognise the existence of that duty. And the four identified factors were, firstly, the existence of a real and immediate risk to life. The second, an assumption of responsibility by the state for that person's welfare and safety. Third, the vulnerability of that particular individual. And fourthly, the nature of the risk has to be an exceptional risk. So it's beyond the ordinary risk of the kind that individuals should reasonably be expected to take. So quite a prescriptive set of circumstances, really, in order to engage that positive operational duty. And third of all is the enhanced investigative duty, which is essentially a duty to inquire into and explain the circumstances of a death. Coroners have a a substantive duty to investigate every death, but there is also a procedural obligation arising in those specific types of cases. And it's often been termed in the case law as being parasitic, on the possibility of a breach by a state agent of one of the substantive operational or systems duties. So essentially, there has to be an arguable breach of the state's substantive duties under Article 2 on the facts of a particular case. It can't exist where there isn't that substantive duty in place. And where those circumstances arise, the investigation will usually be fulfilled by a Middleton-style type of inquest. Essentially, it's a very specific set of circumstances that engages Article 2. And commonly in the field of a healthcare context, there is consistently evolving case law about the types of cases that would give rise to a triggering of that Article 2. But really, from a practitioner's point of view, you are looking when you're analysing papers, whether on behalf of a family or any other interested person, and you're thinking that maybe Article 2 might be engaged you need to be looking at the overarching system framework that's in place as a stepping stone to which you can then go on and and make submissions at a pre-inquest review hearing. Lovely. I mean, it's it's a really tricky determination, isn't it? And I mean, it's becoming such a, a hot topic because, of course, there are so many different circumstances in which there could be an arguable breach. One of the cases that I found to be quite useful is Van Cole and Chief Constable of the Hertfordshire Police, 2008, Citation UK, 8th House of Lords, page 50. And the reason I've always found that to be quite useful is because that warns against the dangers of hindsight when you're looking at what was known or ought to have been known at the time. And that's what's relevant. You're not looking at these things with hindsight because very sadly, once something has happened, it's very easy to put a different gloss on the circumstances as you're looking back. Are there any other practical steps that you can think of which are determined by whether or not Article 2 is engaged or linked to Article 2 being engaged? Well, I think from the outset, if you're involved at an early stage and you're representing family-interested persons, for example, and you think that Article 2 might be triggered, then you want to have information gathering at the forefront of your mind, really. So, for example, if it's in a healthcare context and the death occurred uh, in that context, 
then you'd want to be obtaining results of any internal investigations that were carried out by the relevant uh, trust tertiary centre or even those in primary care, uh, alongside any guidance and policy documents. If you're wanting to draw to the coroner's attention issues about the system or framework in which that particular death took place. If, for example, at a pre-inquest review hearing, you make those submissions and a coroner isn't with you in that Article 2 isn't engaged at that particular time, my advice in that situation would be not to despair because the coroner's got it in the back of their mind what the issue is that you're wanting an answer to. And it may well be that something occurs during the course of the actual evidence during the inquest, which then triggers Article 2. So even if you're not successful at a pre-inquest review hearing stage, it's still worth, in my view, making the arguments if you think there's an arguable breach of a state duty. And I suppose if you're representing families as well, family interested persons, those representing them want to bear in mind that even if Article 2 isn't engaged, the information that you are gathering as part of that information gathering exercise might go to whether a coroner issues a prevention of future deaths report at the end of an inquest and they're often termed Regulation 28 reports. And essentially, if a coroner is of the view that during the course of the inquest, there are circumstances that exist at the present moment in that there's a continued risk that other deaths will occur in the future, the coroner is is under a duty to issue a Regulation 28 report if they're of the view that actions required to reduce that risk or eliminate that risk. And just like Article 2 can be triggered during the course of the evidence itself at an inquest, the making of a Regulation 28 report isn't restricted to matters that may have caused or contributed to the deceased's death. It's to do with anything that's revealed during the investigation which might trigger the duty. So when you're representing interested persons at inquests, it's incredibly important to listen to any particular concerns the coroner is indicating, because it may not be that it goes to the causation side of how the deceased died. It might be more of a peripheral issue. And during the course of the inquests, that has evolved in order that the coroner has voiced a particular concern. And I guess that's what, Louise, you were saying at the outset about it being quite a, a reactionary process. And those representing interested persons will really need to be aware that if something does crop up in the evidence that could go to the making of a Regulation 28 report, it's not just family interested persons that will need to be mindful of that. It's going to be all interested persons. In terms of the Regulation 28 reports themselves, they're they're quite a powerful tool. They can have reputational consequences if there's press involvement, for example, during the course of the inquest. And that report can also be shared to any personal organisation that finds it of interest. So I suppose for a family, it's helpful in that it can help ensure that those circumstances of which their loved one dies doesn't arise in the future. So if you're representing a family, you're going to want to try to broaden the investigation, the coroner's investigation, through the disclosure that is on a continual basis sometimes from other interested persons and any issues about the care or service that they received. So, for example, in a healthcare context, looking at serious incident reports or root cause analyses, for example, um, and that's very much going to be an issue that will be important to all interested persons. Should we move on to look at the scope 
of an inquest itself. As you said earlier, the engagement of Article 2 will have an impact on effectively on, on the matters or the central issues to an inquest. But the engagement of Article 2 doesn't necessarily determine the scope. And I've heard two coroners recently explain to family members that even though Article 2 is not engaged, this doesn't have an impact on the level of scrutiny that uh, is going to be engaged during the course of the investigation. As we'll come to see, of course, it has an impact on the conclusions. I always consider it to be reassuring to a family to emphasise the fact that this doesn't mean that there is going to be less scrutiny or that the questions are going to be considered radically differently. Um, Middleton and Jameson inquest. So there's, I suppose there's perhaps a broadening of the Jameson inquest so that, in fact, the distinction isn't as great as it perhaps once was. But the scope is slightly different and the definition of the scope um, is important. We've seen the four statutory questions that the coroner needs to address and defining the scope of the inquest is important because it allows the coroner to address the central matters or the central issues that need to be investigated in order to allow the coroner to answer those questions. And so the case of R on the application of Hamilton and others Coroner for the Birmingham Inquest, 1974-2018, citation EWCA Civ 2081. I'm quoting paragraph 48 because it summarises it quite nicely in my view. A decision on scope represents the coroner's view about what is necessary, desirable and proportionate by way of investigation to enable the statutory functions to be discharged. The coroner has a broad discretion as to the nature and extent of the inquiry. The Court of Appeal endorsed the coroner's assessment and actually said that the word scope has no special meaning of its own. By scope, all that is generally meant is a list of topics upon which the coroner will call relevant evidence so as to be able to answer the four key statutory questions. The scope of the inquest needs to be considered by focusing on those questions. It's not a question of looking at the broad circumstances of what occurred and requiring all of those matters to be explored. So if you're representing or acting for a family, what you will, of course, be anxious to ensure is that the scope is defined as broadly and as many matters fall within scope as possible, because you want as many answers as possible. If you're representing another interested person, not a family member, you'd be more focused on ensuring that that scope is focused, um, that it's narrowed, that it's the coroner really has in mind those four statutory questions. And Subject, of course, to the engagement of Article 2, doesn't stray into broad circumstances. What I found in approaching the PIR stage and looking at scope is that if I'm representing a family, I think it's very useful to set out a list of all of the issues that you consider will fall within the scope. And I consider that's useful for a number of reasons. The first is that it really sets out to the coroner what the family's key concerns is, and that is something that is of concern to coroners, of course. They are mindful of the fact that this is the death of someone's loved one, and they are respectful of that within, obviously, the statutory duties that they have. The other benefit to that is that the other interested persons can also see what the family's concerns are. And it may very well be that even if a particular issue isn't relevant to scope, an interested person has the means to answer a particular question. And very often that sort of assistance may be given. So essentially, if the issue, if you haven't listed the issue, the concern is that it may not be something that is at the forefront of the coroner's mind. As I say, in so far as you are representing an interested person who is not a family member, you're 
you will want to highlight the need to really focus and keep that scope on point. We've talked a lot about interested persons. So I thought it might be useful to move on to and to look at, again, following that PIR agenda pattern, who those interested persons might in fact be. Because, of course, the grant of IP status is uh, important because it allows a, a person to formally participate in the inquest proceedings. And that has ongoing implications in terms of receiving disclosure, in terms of being notified of dates, PIRs and so forth. Again, using the term persons rather than parties. The family is always granted IP status. I can't imagine circumstances. It's set out in Section 47 of the Coroners and Justice Act 2009. That section determines who those interested persons may be. When you're looking at who you might define or who you might consider falls within or should be granted that IP status, the important provisions are section 47 to f a person who may by any act or omission have caused or contributed to the death of the deceased or whose employee or agent may have done so so in circumstances where there might be a concern about some clinical negligence or elements such as those you'll often get ip status being granted in those circumstances but in fact, the provisions go slightly a slightly wider and you can have, in any event, entities which have sufficient interest to allow interested person status to be granted. That can be enough if you can demonstrate that there is sufficient interest, sufficient either involvement or relevance, that can be enough to uh, allow the grant of interested person status. And Louise, when you talk about ongoing um, disclosure... What do you expect to receive and when do you expect to receive documents if you're acting, for example, for a family interested person? Because, of course, for those people that um, practice in litigation, there are case management directions and set deadlines by which things are to be disclosed. So how is it different in the inquest sphere? I suppose, unlike in a trial where you'll have a direction, a date for disclosure, you'll have a list and disclosure effectively, although there is an ongoing duty of disclosure, it's anticipated that disclosure will happen at a particular point on a particular date. It's an ongoing process. Now, if you're acting for a family, you would be expecting to be receiving disclosure. If you are acting for an interested person, you would be expecting to provide disclosure. So in terms of what you know and what you have, that will be different at different stages for different interested persons. It sometimes feels a little as though documentation, witness evidence is is effectively being almost drip fed. That's not what is happening. It's just that the evidence is being obtained as matters progress. Whether you're acting for a family or another interested person, There are some practical tips that I have, not meaning to be patronising in any way, but I consider it is incredibly important to be keeping schedules of disclosure, keeping a log not only of what you receive from the coroner, but what you've sent to the coroner, so that I can anticipate what the coroner may or may not have looked at at that particular stage. Be disciplined about uploading documents when emails come in, making sure that it's all filed properly. And I often start, when I receive papers, start with the chronology and update it as I receive disclosure, because 
that allows you to, first of all, to have an understanding of what you have to keep on top of the evidence as best you can. And it, it allows you to get back into these proceedings very quickly. Initially, you'll get the PIR agenda for the first PIR. To the extent that at that stage, witness statements have been obtained, you may expect to receive some of those. You will also be expecting to um, receive some of the documentary evidence. But it's a two-stage disclosure because, of course, the interested persons will disclose matters to the coroner. It's then for the coroner to determine what is necessary for onward disclosure or what is appropriate for onward disclosure. So, for example, if you have something, some very sensitive material, there's always a possibility that it will be disclosed in the first instance to the coroner, not for onward disclosure until it is redacted. The starting point for disclosure of material is that it's material that's relevant for the purposes of the coroner's inquiry. If that document is relevant for those purposes, the coroner is entitled to see it. But essentially, when the coroner is assessing the scope for disclosure, what they have to consider are the relevant facts and that those relevant facts need to be fully, fairly and fearlessly investigated. So it's very much, again, back to the four central questions, what will assist in determining those four statutory questions. And the position is different to the usual civil trials in the sense that there isn't a statutory duty of candour. But coroners would expect public bodies in particular to engage and to cooperate in the process of disclosure. And certainly that's always been my experience. So essentially, once the coroner is asked for something, the expectation is that it would be provided subject, of course, to those legal exceptions. But it's not quite the same approach that you would expect uh, in a trial. And that, of course, links back into the fact that it is the coroner who is leading and conducting this investigation. So it's for the coroner in the first instance to determine what may or may not be appropriate. But of course, public bodies in, in particular will be doing their best to assist. Again, in terms of documentary evidence, no doubt you get medical records and so forth at particular junctures. And the time at which those are produced or disclosed will be dependent on the speed, nature, extent of the investigation, extent of the documentation. And witness lists, you very often get a working document that is started effectively at the first PIR and then added to. And it later in due course, closer to the inquest or when you are determining the length of the inquest, the coroner will be deciding what evidence might be capable of being read. So we say Rule 23, read evidence. And essentially, if it's not possible for the maker of the written evidence to give inquest, or there's a good and sufficient reason why they shouldn't attend or won't attend, then of course, there are certain situations in which that witness evidence may be read rather than the witness attending in person. Just as an aside, I've seen more documentary inquests being listed. There's chief coroner guidance on this, guidance number 29. This makes it, in my view, quite clear that documentary inquest is most appropriate for a straightforward matter. But there is always a possibility of an inquest effectively being determined on the basis of papers, whether that's witness statement or documentary evidence. Louise, can you tell us a little bit more about the actual format itself of an inquest? Of course, you may have a jury inquest or you may simply be before the coroner herself. And it's Section 7 of the Coroners and Justice Act, which determine the situations that require a jury. The most common is where the deceased has been uh, in custody at the time of death. So the prison inquests that I act in, where there's a concern that the cause of death is unnatural and has 
occurred in state custody, then you will be sitting, or the coroner would sit with the jury. But essentially, it's the coroner again who will define the witness list and set out which witnesses are to be called. The coroner asks the questions at the outset. So again, if you haven't seen an inquest before, that is quite a foreign concept because, of course, in your traditional civil trial, you'd have the witness giving evidence in chief by way of a written statement and then being cross-examined. Now, that is not what happens at an inquest. You have the coroner who will ask questions of that witness about the central issues. Now, sometimes the coroner will ask that witness to read the statement that they have provided or parts of that statement, but it's the coroner who will lead the questioning. And then the other interested persons have opportunities to put questions to that witness. And then whoever is representing the interested person who has effectively provided that witness or who's linked to that witness, they have the opportunity to ask questions at the end. And one of the interesting characteristics of an inquest is, of course, because it's not adversarial, there are not the same strict rules about leading questions. So you will find that the nature of the questioning can be uh, just different and you are discouraged Positively, you are not supposed to be cross-examining a witness either. And there has again been recent guidance. September 2021, the Bar Standards Board, in association with the Solicitors Regulation Authority and Silex Regulation, issued new guidance in respect of advocates working in coroner's courts. So it's really important to have a look at that because that does help you. It just helps to remind you about the different expectations of you when you are in the coroner's court as opposed to within the civil court in a more traditional trial situation. One of the issues is that that element of cross-examination, that feeling of cross-examination is not something that is tolerated in the same way. Of course, different coroners will take different approaches, but by and large, you will find that the questioning is is slightly different. And certainly when you are effectively re-examining a witness, you are not limited to non-leading questions, to open questions in quite the same way. So it's easier to direct a witness to the relevant documentation, for example. And then at the end, of course, once you have done that, you will be making submissions and addressing conclusions. So we've looked at all of the matters leading up to the inquest itself, Lauren, what can you tell us about the conclusions that a coroner might reach and how you would assist the coroner in terms of closing submissions? Well, uh, coroners have various options. They can either return what's called a short form conclusion, which is essentially uh, involves the coroner picking from a list of um, set conclusions. So for example, a death of natural causes or accident, misadventure or, or suicide may be the most appropriate. And actually, the chief coroner's guidance says that coroners should try to return a short form conclusion where possible. That the reasoning behind that is really for statistical purposes, in order that certain deaths can be put into certain categories. And the idea is that if someone were to look at a record of inquest in 20 to 30 years time, it should be clear to whoever reads the record of inquest how that person came to their death. The other option is a narrative conclusion. Uh, And essentially what that means is a coroner does not have to be bound, of course, by the short form conclusions, but they can opine on how the deceased came by their death. And that will often be in a short, neutrally phrased conclusion. Or it's open to a coroner to mix between the two and pick a short form conclusion and adding on a narrative in order to be able to give a clear conclusion as to how the deceased came by their death. 
And in terms of how advocates can assist the coroner when they make their closing submissions, I think the important thing for advocates to bear in mind is that at the end of the process, it's about helping the coroner come to their conclusion. So once the facts are established, whether it's by Rule 23, red evidence or live oral evidence at an inquest, coroners need to answer those four statutory questions, subject to Article 2 being engaged, and that broadens the how question. And once those four questions have been answered, that should naturally follow so that a coroner can give a conclusion. So it's all about distilling down from the facts to the four questions and ultimately a conclusion. So advocates need to bear in mind when they're making their submissions is how a coroner is able to follow those steps. Of course, if you're representing a family interested person and a question that families will always want to know the answer to, but it's not something that's covered in the inquest process is why the deceased died. And of course, a a coroner is limited to how. So an important battleground is often the issue of causation in the context of deaths. And causative consequences of any failures identified during an inquest, in my view, can assist families in obtaining a narrative conclusion. Because, of course, although it's a matter for the coroner as to whether they return a short-form conclusion or, or a narrative one, that discretion is informed by law. And the question of causation is entirely relevant to the exercise of that discretion. So, for instance, some coroners might take the view that if during the course of the inquest, it's become clear that there were causative consequences of shortcomings in the deceased care, then in those circumstances, a narrative conclusion would be more appropriate because that would more accurately reflect the circumstances by which the deceased came by their death, as opposed to a short form conclusion. Sometimes narrative conclusions may be more appropriate if, for example, there is, for argument's sake, a fall within a hospital. And in those circumstances, a conclusion of accident might be appropriate because that's one of the short form conclusions. But let's say subsequent to that, there were events that took place in terms of the medical care that that particular patient received, or there were delays in their treatment that go to the medical cause of death. The short form conclusion of an accident might not be appropriate in that situation, and a coroner may or may not want to um, incorporate a narrative as well. So as long as advocates can assist coroners in answering the four statutory questions that will enable them to lead to a conclusion then that is what they should be doing. And I suppose for certain conclusions, there are set factors that need to be established, set elements. So for example, in the context of suicide, there are certain elements that need to be present for a finding of suicide. Then one of the advocate's jobs is going to be to explain to the coroner what elements need to be present for that particular finding and what conclusions are available. The difference between making closing submissions at an inquest and making closing submissions in the course of a trial, for example, is that representatives can't address the coroner on the evidence, which may seem a bit unusual for um, advocates commonly practising in trials, because it's the coroner that will summarise the findings and the evidence they have heard. It's not for advocates to be delving into that. The role of the advocate at the end of the inquest, in my view, is about assisting the coroner in answering those questions. 
It's a difficult balance to strike, isn't it? Because to a certain extent, when you're looking at conclusions, you can't help but at least mention the evidence. And to a certain extent, it's about getting a feel from the coroner as to how far she decides that actually she needs you to, to go to assist. No, it is, a, it is an interesting balance to reach. And of course, then when you are looking at a jury inquest, you have the balancing act of addressing the coroner on what matters may be safely left to the jury. And if you are acting for an interested person who's not a family, that's a very important um, element to consider and you need to look into the causative links between whatever element is being considered. Thank you very much for listening to the Personal Injury Pod. Please don't forget to subscribe. You'll get more news, you'll get insight into complex personal injury cases and other topics that are relevant and developing. If you'd like to find out more about St. John's Chambers or get in contact with us, please go to stjohnschambers.co.uk.